Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. A little while back, I did an episode about my values as a dog trainer and as a behavior consultant. And today I'm recording an episode about my values as a dog sports competitor. I think it's really important for all of us to consider what our values are before we ever fill out an entry form or really before we ever attend a dog sport training class. It's important because having kind of the right values is not inherent in dog sports. Not everybody's values are gonna line up with yours who you encounter in dog sports. And for me, I need to know what those values are before I'm put in a situation where those values might be tested. Because if I don't know what they are, then I might not know that they're being tested and I might do something that I will regret. So I'd be lying if I said that this topic just arose organically for me while I was out walking my dogs, as many of the topics do. This topic arose because of posts on social media about competing and just about experiences competing that I've seen in the last few days. And specifically posts about maybe how we take care of young dogs versus old dogs, posts about a dog's experience at a big event, posts about a dog's experience in a training class. We need a values check here. So number one, and this was in my training values as well, I have a value that I will not hurt or scare my dog to teach them competition behaviors. In training or behavior modification, I might climb that humane hierarchy ladder and I may land in kind of negative reinforcement land, or I may land even in negative punishment land or positive punishment land, depending on what's going on. But in my competition training, I have a little bit of a different set of values that I'm not totally sure we can climb the ladder in the same way if necessary. And that really comes down to just this core value of, I will not cause you pain and I will not scare you to teach you this thing. I will not ask my dog to face fear, pain, perceived danger, or physical overexertion for my sport. Here's some situations where I think people are doing that and maybe they don't know that they are, or maybe they just haven't kind of looked this in the face and got clear about it. If your dog is afraid of the noises that happen at agility trials, so maybe they're afraid inside buildings and they do agility great outside, but inside buildings, they exhibit fear due to the different acoustics. And this has been several clients of mine, several students that have come through classes. In my opinion, it is against my values to ask that dog to compete under those circumstances, even if they do it for me. So it's not about whether you do it or not. It's about whether you show me that you feel safe doing it. 
Here's a real life example. Last fall, I took Felix to sign a sport and it was his first national, uh, first big event, first time driving across the country to go to a thing to run. And I knew, and I talked this out with my coach, Megan Foster, before I went, but I knew that there was a possibility that he would get there and he would say no for a variety of reasons. He loves agility. He loves working with me, but there was a possibility that he was going to be too overwhelmed by that environment. And I knew that. And I knew that I was going to need to be okay filling out that entry form and driving across the country and scratching and going home if that's what Felix said he needed. Uh, His very first run was a practice run you're allowed to do. So it's just a training round. It is timed. So everybody has, I don't know, a minute, I think a minute and a half on the course. And there was a loud tone indicating that the time was up. And the very loud tone was coming from a speaker that was right behind where the dogs needed to set up and go into the ring. Not a great situation for a lot of dogs. And I saw a lot of dogs bothered by the tone. And when I walked in and I heard the tone, I didn't have Felix in there yet. I thought, all right, here we go. If he's afraid of that tone and he says, no, we're walking out. He's not going to do his practice run. And I might ask him to do his first real run in the absence of the tone. But I knew that that could bother him, that that could be that thing. And I walked him in and he heard the tone and he seemed very much unaffected by it. Now, that tone might have frightened him under other circumstances, but it didn't frighten him in that circumstance. And so, wonderful. We were good to go. But had he flattened his ears, looked at me nervously at the sound of the tone, I wouldn't have asked him to run in that situation because it is a value for me that I don't ask him to face something that scares him to do the sport, to do the stupid thing that is ultimately for me and not for him. I will not ask the dog that they face pain. Or physical discomfort. Dogs that have recovered from injuries sometimes, I believe, live with chronic pain in a way that we are not acknowledging. You know, here's a great example. Dog um, injures itself doing agility. Dog goes through surgery, maybe rehab, long, lengthy process. Dog is approved to return to the sport. Okay, the owner is told by the veterinary team that the dog is not experiencing pain, that the dog is fully healed, that the dog is ready to return to sport, but the dog doesn't want to do the sport now. Dog did want to do the sport pre-injury. Now the dog doesn't want to do the sport. And you're saying, what's wrong with this dog? He's not hurt anymore. I know he's not hurt anymore. The vet says he's not hurt anymore. It is so possible. First of all, you can't ever decide somebody's not in pain. If you can't ask the dog what his pain scale is today, you don't know if he's hurting or not. And a lot of times surgery leaves us with lingering pain or discomfort that you couldn't see with the naked eye that somebody would have to tell you about. So you don't know if the dog hurts and you also don't know if the dog's uncomfortable doing agility because of that injury, because of the way that it healed, because of the surgery site, because of whatever. The dog is telling you though, they don't want to do this thing post-injury. And so to me, asking them to is against my values. I will also not ask the dog to face perceived danger. And you could lump that in with fear for sure. But I like to kind of flip this around and say, you know, yeah, if the dog is afraid of, let's say, the, the seesaw, because the dog perceives that this is dangerous for him to be walking on then I don't ask him to walk on it. 
I might go through a training program that helps the dog not perceive danger when it comes to the teeter or when it comes to maybe the height of the dog walk. I have known dogs that I believed were afraid of heights, that I believed were scared being up there. And I am not going to ask the dog to push through perceived danger because I do think it's different. Like I might look at a bridge across a river and not feel like it is structured sound enough for me to walk across. I'm not afraid of the bridge because I'm not on the bridge, but I perceive danger. And so I choose not to walk across the bridge. And that's me expressing agency over my life and my environment. And we owe that to our dogs. So if the dog looks at the seesaw and perceives danger, it's like, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. Or the tunnel. Maybe the dog is like, well, that's a long, dark situation that I don't want to go in. They're not afraid yet because you haven't made them do it but they do perceive danger and you need to respect that. So if your dog perceives danger in a situation, like perhaps the dog is worried about people, people approaching them, maybe even other dogs, then they're going to perceive danger in an agility environment because there's a lot of people and there's a lot of other dogs. And I don't think it's fair for me to ask you to face perceived danger. I could certainly undergo a program to help you not believe those things are dangerous anymore. That would be the only way through. I would not ask the dog to do the thing that they perceived as dangerous though. So let's go back to the bridge example. If you really need me to cross this bridge and you know the bridge is safe, then we're going to need to go through teaching me that the bridge is safe in other situations. So you put the bridge literally on the ground and I'm just walking across it and it's on the ground. And if the bridge fails, I'm still on the ground. So it's cool. So I'm learning that the bridge is safe. And then you might put the bridge a little higher up, but it's on like padding. And so if it breaks, I'm just going to fall on some padding. Like it's okay. And I'm, and I already kind of think the bridge is okay. Cause it was on the ground last time. And so you're asking me to go through all of these steps until finally I say to you, you know what? I think the bridge is safe. I can cross the water now. Now it's okay for you to ask me to cross the bridge, but it's not okay for you to ask me to cross the bridge until you've convinced me it's safe other way. And do not convince me it's safe by dragging me across because that might convince me the bridge was safe, but it also teaches me that you're not. Physical overexertion, this is one that we got to address. Specifically, my breed border collies, a lot of them will literally work to collapse if you are asking them to. So pay attention to, is the dog getting too hot? Has the dog done too many reps? Is the dog's heart rate, you know, super high? Is the dog's tongue panting super far out of its mouth? Give that dog a break to recover. I don't ask them to go through physical overexertion. They go through physical exertion. It is a physical sport and game, but I'm not going to ask them to get to the point where they are sluggish, super fast breathing, big tongue, certainly not collapse. And that's going to vary based on who you've got. If I'm running a pug in agility, physical overexertion is going to look different than running my border collie. And for some pugs, you know, I pick on pugs because it's my family's breed and I'm, I'm really familiar with them and I love them. But let's say, you know, the respiratory structure of this pug is superior to that pug, then, then what you're asking for is going to be different. And you need to be aware of what you are asking. I do think, and I'm not going to name any of these breeds because I've learned my lesson that there are some breeds for whom agility itself is always going to classify as physical overexertion. And in my opinion, it's not fair to ask them to do. So 
moving on with my values. I promise my dog to take care of their body. For me, what that means is that I feed them a good food and I have them looked after by a sports medicine specialist and a general practice veterinarian. And I keep them healthy with routine care that way. I monitor them honestly pretty closely. I'm always trying to make sure that I'm taking the very best care of their body that I can. And that's true. That's as true of my young spry dogs that can pretty much do anything and rebound easily the next day. And it's also true for my older dogs that are competing. So if I am competing, let's use center sport as an example, again, driving across the country is hard on my body and theirs. So I'm going to build recovery days in, make sure that we both get some good time to spend moving our bodies on the trail before we have to compete. And I'm going to do that for my two-year-old or three-year-old who doesn't need it to keep the bars up, but who deserves it just as much as my nine-year-old who might need it to keep the bars up. So that's about values. If I'm only going to provide that extra recovery time to the dog who can't compete without it, then I'm operating outside of my values. I'm going to give it to every single dog that I'm competing with because they all deserve it, whether they need it or not. I am going to take care of your mind is another promise that I give them. So again, that means that if you're scared, nervous, uncomfortable, I'm going to make sure and help you with that as much as possible. And that might look like a full behavior change program. It might look like behavioral medication. It might look like, you know what, this environment's too hard for you, so we're not going to do it. But it also might look like you're so aroused that you can't even swallow a piece of food. So I'm not going to ask you to do agility until your brain is here on earth. And then I'm going to fully address that problem. Also, the I will take care of your body and mind promise, that's for my dogs forever. That starts when they're first in my hands when they're eight weeks old and it ends the day I let them go. It is the entire time. It's during the sport. It's during retirement. It's the whole time. It's a promise. It's my values. It's a big deal to me. Moving on, I will avoid asking the dog for too much always. And if I find that I am wrong about what you can handle, I will honor that information. So I wouldn't have entered Felix in Sinus Sport last year if I thought he was going to not be able to do it, right? Like if I thought there was a good chance that he'd hear that buzzer, for instance, and and be like, no dice, I'm not doing this, I'm too scared. I probably wouldn't have entered him. I believed that the training I had done to that point, the resiliency that he had built at that point, the our working relationship, his love of agility was going to prevail and that he wasn't going to be uncomfortable and he was going to have a good time. And also just as a side note, Felix loved Sinosport. He had the most ridiculous grin on his face every day as we walked into that arena. He had a wonderful time and I have no regrets about taking him. But let's say I had been wrong. Cause that's what I thought would happen. But let's, let's say I had been wrong and I got there and I found out. So like he heard the tone and he said, I don't like this, or maybe it wasn't that blatant, but like he was a mess on course, you know, making mistakes. He doesn't normally make not really able to hear me or listen, just kind of all over the board, or maybe afraid suddenly of something that I didn't expect him to be afraid of. 
I have to honor that information in front of me. It is in my values to honor the information they provide, especially when that information is contrary to what I believed to be true in the first place. Because ultimately, and this is where I'll wrap it up, I know this sport is for me. I believe that my dog's lives are enhanced by the training of this sport, but it is my life that's enhanced by the competing, not theirs. And so I promise them that their lives will be good with or without it. They will have plenty of enrichment and exercise and enjoyment in their day-to-day without it because the competing part is for me, will always be for me and not for them. And I have dogs that enjoy competition. Felix enjoys competition. I know though that the great time, the driving time, the long days at dog shows, those are harder ultimately on dogs than they are on us. And those are hard things for us to ask of them. They're big things for us to ask of them. And so I need to make sure that their lives are really good otherwise. And in fact, I was talking, I was at a dog show this weekend, talking to a friend who really prioritizes wellness for her dogs as well. And she was saying, I think his life is too good. (laughs) I think that for most dogs, a dog show weekend is a really good weekend because they get to be with their person the whole weekend doing stuff. And she says, but for my dog, I think this is a really hard weekend for him because his life is so good otherwise. And I said to her, you know, I think that my dogs experience some of the same thing and like good for us. So give this some thought, think about what your values are, and then think about what your trainer's values are. And they don't have to be exactly the same as long as you know what yours are and you don't step outside of them, regardless of the training environment that you're in. Okay. And I've got a few Patreon questions. This one is from Izzy who writes, I'm curious if you have any guidelines for determining if an in-person class or even a school or facility just isn't the right fit. For context, I've been attending an in-person class with my six-month-old puppy who's been struggling to concentrate in this environment. Could it be worth it to stick it out if we're working on building up skills in the presence of distractions outside of class? So if your dog is practicing behaviors that you don't want to see in the class, then the class is not the right fit. If the dog is struggling to learn, the class is not the right fit. And that might not be the class. That might be the format. That might be the group class format. Other ways to determine if it's not a good fit would be values. Just talked about that in this episode. And there's another episode on that that's more specific to training um, versus competing. So make sure that the values are in line, but also talk to the instructor and say, I really don't think my puppy is you know, learning much because they're struggling with the environment. Is there a way that we can cut down the stimulation, maybe put up a barrier so my puppy can learn behind a barrier, that sort of thing. Probably writes, I have a four-month-old working line German Shepherd. At the point where I'm thinking about her social dog-to-dog needs, we are already doing lots of work around other dogs in our exposure outings and training classes. But my biggest worry is arousal. To date, she's been socializing with my family dogs at my parents' house, but the last two weeks, her arousal was through the roof, vocalizing in the car and could not come down. And her play style is no longer appropriate for them. They're small Frenchies. I'm a dog trainer and my plan for my pup is sports, potentially a helper dog for my business and hopefully a companion on my hiking and running. I'm very conflicted about whether I can continue to provide this social outlet without her developing issues stemming from arousal. I'd love to know your thoughts. Is it going to be detrimental for her if I just focus on exposure, no interaction and engagement with me around other dogs? I have 
an adult dog at home, but he's older and he wants nothing to do with her. So there's a lot more questions here than I think you asked, Paula, but I'm going to try to address kind of all of them. Number one, my class Teenage Tyrants over on FDSA is running right now, and I hope that you'll join it because your puppy's at the right age for it. Also, understand that you have a breed that's not typically dog social in adulthood, and so focusing really hard on not interacting with other dogs, engaging with you around other dogs. I would lean heavy on that, but I'd also be finding if you can appropriate play partners for her to help kind of extend her sociability around other dogs into adulthood. French bulldogs, not appropriate play partners for working line five-month-old German shepherds or any older than that, kind of as you mentioned. And it's not about like arousal itself does not cause problems. Arousal itself is not the enemy. It's the behaviors that you're seeing that are problematic. So screaming in the car and not being able to come down because she's too excited about playing with her friends. Yeah, no, that's not something I would repeat um, ever. So I would be working on engagement with you, exposure to other dogs, try to take her on outings like long walks with other dogs, not play groups and try to have those dogs be pretty well matched to her and have them be other adults. So her size or bigger and grownups and decent with other dogs would be what I would encourage you to do. All right. Next one comes from Ashley who writes, my question is about sound sensitivity and aggressive reactions to abrupt loud sounds. We have Millie, a three-year-old spade Sussex Spaniel. There's no difference in field versus show in this breed, which means flushing and hunting instincts are alive and well. Millie will chase a sound like thunder, motorcycle revs, gunshots, or fireworks with her hackles raised, barking madly while running full speed. Thank you very much for describing what you're seeing, Ashley. I have no doubt she would thrash the sound if she could. <laughs> and uh, are there good impulse control techniques or some other ideas to help her around loud, sudden noises? I want to be alert, but not frantic about the noises. For what it's worth, background noises don't face her and our two adult, two cat household is fairly quiet most of the time. Millie does tracking, trick dog and we plan to get into barn hunt she also gets four to six hours off leash in nature weekly plus walks and outings to pet friendly places so Ashley it sounds like you're doing a great job with Millie and this is a not uncommon iteration of what we would call noise kind of noise related problematic behaviors I would call this noise reactivity and it should basically be treated the same as sound sensitivity. So sound sensitivity, me, me feeling like that's more of a fear-based shutdown sort of thing. Like I'm afraid I'm going to go hide. Millie might be afraid. We don't know, but she is having a big overreaction to the sounds. And I would treat it the same as those fear hiding under the couch kind of dogs at the same sort of noises. So that would be talking to somebody potentially about medication and then also looking at training an alternative response that looks basically just like eating or doing something else. So when the noise happens, so you'd start with a low level noise and then you would cue her to go do something else super fun. My friend Amy Cook in her class, Sound Advice, calls this a noise party. She trains the noise party in uh, without the noise ever present, and then she pairs the noise party with the noises. 
Another way to go, of course, would be desensitization, meaning you're going to play YouTube videos of these sounds at low, low levels, and you're going to crank them up slowly. But I think, and I think this is what you're experiencing, a lot of times it is the sudden loudness that is the problem. And so if you were playing it kind of all the time at low levels, she would habituate to a constant amount of noise, but still would probably have a hard time with those sudden noises, which is where the noise party, a la Amy Cook, would come in. And last one for this week is from Jen. Jen writes, what would be your general approach to helping a water hose obsessed border colleague just even a little feel even just a little less manic about a hose? I have my thoughts, but I'm curious about yours. Context, we don't allow him to access the hose, but he still does try to rush to the door or gate if it's turned on, which is clear over arousal as he usually has lovely door and gate manners. My primary goal would be helping him not lose his mind if ever he saw a dog getting cooled off with a hose at a summer event. And yes, this is tonic from the case study um everybody so jen yeah people really build uh these behaviors and i don't know if you built it the way that people do they're like oh my gosh look how funny this dog will bite at the um the hose and it, what a fun game what a great way to cool off and etc cetera, etc cetera. and we they can build really big feelings and obsessive behavior really really quickly so you should go about it any, you know, the same that you would go about any other really strong feelings producing stimulus. So if my dog is going to be absolutely ridiculous and unable to respond to me when a loud truck drives by, then I'm certainly not going to expect him to walk next to me on leash past a road with large trucks, right? Instead, I'm going to find the place that he can still listen to me in the presence of that truck, and I'm going to build from there. So if the hose just being out is where you need to start, that might be where you need to start. And it's arousal testing, it's worked up protocols near the hose that is off and just out. Then maybe the hose is on, but running really slowly and certainly no nozzle and then and so on and so on right so you're building up the dog's response levels around the hose and then i'm going to be really honest with you i manage this behavior i have a couple dogs who are like this and i just manage it we're just not around hoses if they see it and they they are okay with other dogs getting hosed off and i think that's because of my heavy management if tonic's not okay with that which is what it sounds like you're gonna want to build it up just like you worked on his general um problems with you know being around other dogs same stuff but it's being around the hose and that's it for this week Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.